that a lot of what was going on in my life was complete nonsense, that I had, I was dealing with drama, I was participating in drama. Um, I could just look and see, okay. Welcome to Power Up Your Performance, where we talk about how you can learn to think, feel, perform, and live like a champion. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your hostess, Kim Peek. I'm a movement and mindset strategist with a passion for running, triathlon, and all things fitness. For those of you who are new here, running is my jam. And I believe that what we learn through our athletic pursuits transforms us. It boosts our confidence, changes the way we think, and it helps us look at any of life's challenges from a new perspective. You can learn more about me and the coaching that I offer at www.crushingmygoals.com and follow me on all social media at Power of Run. I am so excited to share this week's interview. I talked to Meredith Atwood, who some of you might know better as Swim Bike Mom. She is a recovering attorney, motivational speaker, and author of the newly released Triathlon for the Every Woman. You can be a triathlete. Yes, you. She is also the host of the podcast, The Same 24 Hours. Meredith lives in Overland Park, Kansas, for now, with her husband and two children, and writes about all things at MeredithAtwood.com. Her next book, The Year of No Nonsense, will be released December 2019. You can follow her everywhere at Swim Bike Mom. In this interview, we talked about Meredith's books, Overcoming Addiction, Depression and Suicide, some of the fears we have as moms, and a little bit about triathlon and life. She also tells us about some of the fun things she's discovered since her move to Overland Park, and I share my favorite places to get barbecue in the Kansas City area. If you've never done a triathlon or can't fathom dipping a toe in the water, I still want you to listen. Meredith is real and passionate. And as we talk, you'll learn why just keep moving forward has become a mantra that she lives by. Now, on to the interview. Today on the podcast, I have Meredith Atwood, and I am so excited to talk to you, Meredith, about your book and about your move to Overland Park and all things triathlon. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So one of the first things I want to ask you just is, How do you like Overland Park so far? Oh my gosh. I love it here. So, I mean, when we were leaving Atlanta, everyone was like, why are you going to Kansas? And I thought, what is wrong with Kansas people? You know, like it's almost like it has this bad rap or something. I guess the Wizard of Oz didn't help you guys out much. (laughs) um, I totally love Overland Park. Um, I don't know if you know that we're moving again. I did hear that on another podcast. I was mad. I was so mad because I feel like, I just put a lot of energy in getting it right. And we picked a great neighborhood and the kids like their school and now, you know, but I love it here. I think it's such a great community and I mean, it has everything like no matter what you need, you can find it in Overland Park. And I think that's so cool. (laughs) And I love that you found a grocery store that became your office of sorts. I mean, I love the grocery store. I love the grocery store. I leave there and I feel like I've been on a little vacation. It's just a great place. I wish that one was closer to my house. It looks like quite the hangout. (laughs) 
It's awesome. Yeah. So I'm super happy here. I, you know, it's funny. The, the thing I notice about Kansas is the wind. Cause the right. other day it was like 65 degrees or something. I thought, and it was sunshiny, you know, the one day in the last four months. And I went out and sat on the deck to do some reading, but the wind was just insane. <laughs> it's just blowing my book all around, but it's really cool here. I, I do enjoy it. So do you have a favorite thing that you've discovered? I've really liked watching all your Instagram updates and seeing different places you've been. Some of the places you guys have been, I've never, never even heard of or never been to. And we've yeah. lived here for 22 years. Oh my gosh. The art museum knocked my socks off. The Nelson Atkins, mm-hmm. I think it is, in Kansas City. I mean, blew me away. We walk in and there's a Monet, you know, and then you hit the other wall, like across from a Van Gogh. And I mean, not, not that I didn't think Kansas City would have some great art, but you know, you just, we were just wandering into the art museum. And so that was really cool. And then I took the kids to a Royals game this past weekend and it was snowing <laughs> and raining, but it was an adventure. It was, it was awesome. It was awesome to drive up to the stadium and just see that, you know, that view of the chief stadium and the Royal stadium. I mean, I'm such a sucker for baseball stadiums. Baseball is my favorite sport. And so I've just, we've, we've tried to go on little adventures here. I mean, for spring break, the kids wanted to go somewhere and I said, well, we just got here. (laughs) We're not, we're going to go here. We're going to see what's up in Kansas city. And so we kind of stayed here and, and went around, but um, you know, cross, we found CrossFit 913 in Overland Park, and that is a great CrossFit gym. And Stella's, my daughter's done great there. And um, so I've met a few friends there. And um, it's just an, it's an excellent community. I'm not going to let anyone knock Kansas ever. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. I think that people really don't, unless you've lived here, you don't even understand kind of what a hidden gem yeah. Untapped treasure. I don't know what the word is, but you know, just there's, there's something special about Kansas city and yeah. I don't think that it comes across in movies and on TV about just what a great place it is to live. So I'm glad that you like it here. Well, coming from Atlanta, I'll tell you what the greatest untapped little gem is, is you can drive to the major metropolitan area in like 25 minutes and park. You know, you can't do that in Atlanta. You, you may get concert tickets. And then, I mean, I went to Ed Sheeran last year at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and I lived in Roswell and it's like 30 miles. It took me two hours, two hours to get there and get to this concert. And so that's the consideration in Atlanta. You know, you just can't get anywhere. And so for Kansas City, you can just go to concerts and events and it's not a big deal. That's yeah, I'm surprised sometimes how we'll end up downtown two or three times in a week, just not even really just, oh, that's what we're going to do today. And yeah. we know it's no big deal. Yeah. But you have a new book out and that's what you're kind of doing the promo circuit about, telling everybody yeah. about your new book, Triathlon for the Every Woman. And that's what it. I love about this book is that triathlon can be so intimidating to somebody who's new, you have the swim that so many people are just terrified of. And then the bike, it's like, oh, what do we do? Do I need a fancy bike? What do I do? Oh, what about those shoes that clip into the pedals? Am I going to tip over? And yes, yes you are. <laughs> and not even everybody is an experienced runner. So sometimes people are learning three brand new sports. And what you're doing is making triathlon seem accessible to everyone, which I guess is 
basically what the title is about, that we can all do it. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, absolutely. So about, I always have to look at my calendar, which is kind of silly, but about almost 10 years ago at this point, I kind of embarked on this fitness journey and I was, I was about 250 pounds and had two kids under the age of two and was a litigating attorney commuting 12 hours a week. And and life was just insane. And I was really unhappy with, you know, what I had become. I just, I I used to be an athlete in my teen years. I was a weightlifter, so not an endurance athlete. Um, But life just got really sad for me and hard. And I was battling an alcohol problem at the time. I didn't know I was. That came a little bit later with clarity. But um, I kind of stumbled into the sport of triathlon after going to a spinning class. And I didn't really know how to swim. I did like swim team in first grade and that I'll tell you does not an adult swimmer make. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't a cyclist and I certainly wasn't a runner. Um, But this idea of being a triathlete when I had been a couch potato and I had been just severely out of shape, it appealed to me because it was so impossible. You know, it just seemed like it just, how could I possibly do that? And my spinning instructor kind of gave me this strange permission. He's like, you could totally do a triathlon. And, you know, I thought he was crazy, but I kind of took that to heart. And I've also realized the importance of that strange permission. And so throughout my journey and doing my first triathlon and crashing my bike in transition and forgetting my swim cap and finishing near dead last and coming out on the other side, completely victorious and hating it and loving it at the same time. I realized that this was an accessible sport and anyone could do it. It just requires a little bit of forward motion. And so from that point, um, I just kind of kept doing longer and and bigger triathlons at a very slow pace. Like I, I never did anything really fast. Um, I think my, some of my kind of mid middle triathlons were respectable. I mean, I had a, like a six twenty half Ironman. That's not disrespectable. (laughs) if That's even a word, but I never did anything really fast. And so my goal with this book, um, this is the second edition. The first one came out in 2011, and this was this is all updated and, and brand new um, with a lot of new stuff. But, you know, I wanted to give women especially that permission that Jerry, my spinning instructor, had given me because when he said you could do this, I was like, huh, maybe I can. And I think that that, that mission with this book has been fulfilled. I mean, people tell me all the time, if I hadn't read your book, I wouldn't have done this. And, and it's just because I said, you know, here's my story. Here's how I did it. You can too come along. And people are like, yeah, okay, fine. I will. (laughs) And they do. And the book is, I'm really proud of it because when I started trying to do triathlon, there just wasn't a resource that spoke to me. Um, you know, you would get a training plan and your first run would be three miles. And I don't know about you, but you know, when you're not a runner, three miles is quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know? that's, not, that's not a beginner to most people who no. are considering, Oh, should I do a try? Oh, what? I have to run three miles. I can't do that. Right. And yeah. so, and even swimming, I mean, you know, swim a thousand meters, you, you know, the first time I got in the pool as an adult to swim, I put my swim cap on, slapped myself in the eyes, like 
pretty much blinded myself for a good solid 20 minutes. And then I swam four strokes and had to stand up in the middle of the lane. And I thought, what the heck just happened? I thought I knew how to swim. You know, so I wrote the book coming from that perspective, like someone that's going to get in the pool, swim four strokes, stand up and go, what the hell just happened to me? Um, and, and someone who falls on their bike. And, you know, that was the, the triathlete I was. And um, so the book covers all that. It's, it, it's so detailed. And I, and I always tell people I'm grateful I wrote it when I did because I wrote it after my first half Ironman. I was still a baby triathlete. Um, and I, I, rem I wrote stuff like what you need in your gym bag and how do you work your schedule? And I mean, really detailed stuff that I, if I wrote it now, I probably would just forget because I've lost the beginner's mindset. And yeah. so I, I feel very fortunate in that regard that I had the chance to write it when I did. And then the fact that now, you know, four years later or five years after the original pub, um, I'm a coach and have done you know, a lot of other races and have new perspectives too. So I pick up the book, man. It's good. I am proud of it. <laughs> yeah. So I bought the first book shortly after I started in triathlon and I think I have it as an ebook, but I haven't yeah. picked it up in, has it really been out that many years? I mean, it was, I, it's I 2012. It yeah. I published it in 2012. So I keep wow. saying five years, but that's like seven years. Yeah, but I haven't gotten the new one yet, and I do plan on it, but I think I just love what you're doing, and you have also been a speaker and presenter and been involved with a lot of other organizations that are helping get women into triathlon, right? Yeah, yeah. I was um, a founding member with the Ironman and Lifetime uh, Women for Tri organization. And, um, you know, I go wherever people want to invite me, honestly, if someone has a beginner group on Facebook and they're like, Hey, will you pop in and talk to my group? I mean, I'm always up for telling my story and, and encouraging women to step out and do something scary because I think just women in general really have a hard time putting themselves first. And I don't think putting yourselves first is a bad thing. I think you, I think you have to take care of yourself. And that was the connection with me and triathlon. It doesn't have to be triathlon. Um, that just was the method that I used, you know? And so I always like to encourage women. It doesn't matter how you get moving or how you decide to take care of yourself. You just need to. And so, yeah, I, I've kind of crossed over and outside of triathlon a little bit. And my next book is out in December and it's not triathlon based. It's more uh, self-help and, and kind of memoir type things. So yeah, I'm kind of branching outside of triathlon a little bit, but you know, I'll never forget what triathlon means to me. And, and that's why I continue to, to work in that sport because it is such a powerful, um, powerful sport. Yeah. I've loved watching just because I've followed you your blog and your social media for forever. It seems like probably since <laughs> close to the beginning. Yeah. So I have loved just watching the change in your mindset and how you seem so much happier these days. Yeah. And then also just the change in your branding, even as you start venturing into some of these other things, just how you're doing things just a little bit differently. Yeah. Than before. But I do want to talk about your next book, Tell us about the truth onion that we see show up on Instagram. 
My mom, my mom is so funny. She texted me the other day. She's like, you know, your truth onion is going to start weeping and leak onto your floor. Mm. <laughs> like, thanks mom. Like, yeah. So the truth onion. Yeah, that's a component. I mean, it's a little bit of a marketing thing for the new book that's coming out, but um, the new book is called the year of no nonsense. And it was kind of born of the idea that uh, I started in 2017 when I had a really rough year and everything except my health and my family sort of fell apart around me. And when, it's funny when you mentioned rebrand and, you know, when you're starting out blogging 10 years ago and you create something called Swim Bike Mom, you, you know, and your mom reads it and that's it. You don't know that later it's going to become a thing. And then you're, <laughs> you have this Swim Bike Mom thing and you're barely swimming or biking and it's just, it becomes this funny thing. So the rebrand um, is sort of that reason, but it also came out of sort of, changing focus in 2017 when things kind of unraveled in a lot of ways for me. Um, but I looked around and I realized that a lot of what was going on in my life was complete nonsense that I had, I was dealing with drama. I was participating in drama. Um, I could just look and see, okay, I am participating and nonsense. And here's why. And why am I doing this? I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. And so I, I just, on a whim, came up with this idea, the year of no nonsense. What if I have a year of no nonsense? And it seems silly, but the guiding question that sort of came out of that idea was, is this nonsense yes or no? And it became like a guiding force for me. You know, if I was presented with a request from someone or come do the PTA bake sale, like, um, no, that's totally nonsense. <laughs> I'm not doing it. You know, like I would just use that question. Um, is my behavior nonsense? Is the fact that I'm on the floor of the pantry with chips and ice cream nonsense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It kind of is. You don't need that many calories, Mayor, you know? Um, so what came out of that was an opportunity for the republication of the triathlon book. And my editor, when I kind of told her my idea, she was like, we would love for you to write that book, The Year of No Nonsense. And I thought, oh, cool. oh, yeah, well, great. That sounds awesome. So I started writing this book. And while I wrote it, it was like a purge and a therapy. And I came up with all this crap from my childhood. <laughs> it was just like, it took a turn that I did not see coming. And it was supposed to be funny. And, and it is funny. There's definitely funny. But I uncovered the truth of so much about why I do the nonsense things I do, why I think people do the nonsense things they do. And I'm, I'm an armchair psychologist. I love self-help. And I, and so I, you know, I have a lot of influences from people that have degrees in this stuff, but the truth onion, and this is getting back to your original question. Well, um, I knew it was all related. So <laughs> the truth onion kind of came out of the idea that we think we have a problem, right? If you had asked me two years ago what my problem was, my problem was I'm overweight. Okay. That's not really the problem. You know, I, we have a lot of symptoms that are, are, that are symptoms of our problem, right? And so the truth onion is the idea that we got to start peeling. You may be overweight, sure, but why are you overweight? Well, is it because you don't take time to cook? Is it because your husband stresses you out? Is it your job? Do you have a drinking problem? Like, are you helping everyone else and not helping yourself? Like what? So you peel, you start to peel. Okay. 
I'm really stressed out. Well, peel again. Why? Well, it's my job. Peel. Is it really your job? No, it's my marriage. You know, and, and you have to get to the center stinky core of the truth onion for yourself and, and keep peeling until you get to your one biggest nonsense thing. And I think we all have it. We all have our biggest uh, tendency, the biggest personal brand of nonsense that we have to overcome. And once we reach that topic and we really look at it and start to address it, everything will change. Like, and so that's the kind of truth onion analogy and it's spelled out probably a little bit more eloquently on paper, (laughs) but um, yeah, the idea that, that we have to keep peeling to get to our real truth about anything. I mean, um, whether it's ourselves, our unhappiness, our perceived lack of success or value, um, we just have to keep asking ourselves the right questions. It sounds like it's going to be a great book. Now, is I hope it, so. <laughs> have you finished writing it? Yeah, it it's done. It's done and turned in, and I will get. Actually, I think I get the last edit round comes tomorrow. And wow, so, so exciting! It. Yeah, I'll have it for another week, and um, yeah, it's it's into the wild. And, and pu- publishing is funny; you don't realize how long it takes, you know. But to me, now that I've been through the process once this last year, the fact that this book is coming out in only, you know, eight months, I'm like, Oh my God, it's so soon where eight months really before felt like forever. I'm like, Oh my gosh, we have so much to do. Um, but yeah, I've, I put my heart and soul into this book coming out in December. It's, it's, there's really a lot into it. I put my heart and soul into triathlon, you know, six, seven years ago and we redid it. And there's a lot of heart and soul in that too. But this, this next one is quite quite the pot boiler. I think, I mean, my parents are probably going to disown me, but that's okay. I, I was to just going to gonna ask if your mom has heard any of the stories that you discovered. No. And it's, it's kind of tough because, um, I don't know if you have, if you're a G rated podcast, so I'll, you know, watch my language. But, mm-hmm. um, so one of the chapters in the book is about people pleasing and I have a, tendency to be like a massive people pleaser. And I go to, so, to such extremes that I will even try and please people I don't even like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't even like you and I'm trying to make you happy. Like that is people pleasing at its finest. And so one of the things that I talk about is the fact that I cuss like a sailor, if you know me, but you know, I don't, I have this perception around my parents that I would never. And I think it's a lot of the South and respect, but I'm a 40, I'm a 40 year old woman and my parents are adults and I've always just not wanted to disappoint them. And so I cuss a lot in the book and while it's kind of off putting to some people, it's actually a step in the right direction for me personally to publish a book that has, you know, not so great words and to tell some of the stories I'm telling because I'm standing in the truth of the fact that I have to get past this people pleasing and I have to do what is right for me. And my editor took it so far that there's actually a cuss word in the subtitle. Nice. (laughs) And I haven't told my mother. So the subtitle is how a little less BS can change your life, but it's spelled out with an asterisk. And, um, you know, my mom, she's so proud of the triathlon book. Like she's all over Facebook with her pictures, you know, and she's just not going to feel the same about this other book. (laughs) She will. She'll be proud of you. I'm sure it'll be fine. But yeah. 
So I'm excited, but it's risky. You have been so good, I think, about using your own, the, the things you've gone through and the pain that you've experienced in different aspects of your life to help others with that and to help them at least understand your experience so that maybe they can start looking at how they perceive parts of their lives. Would you like to talk a little bit about either the, or both, sobriety or body image for us? Sure. I mean, I think they're, they're very tied together. Um, sobriety was, was interesting. I had my first drink at 17 and I fell in love with alcohol. I mean, the fact that it could transport me and change my personality and make me relax. Like I was an instant addict. I didn't know it. I thought I was fun girl, fun party girl. And, um, you know, I, I was until I wasn't, you know, there was always a tipping point for me in the evening. And I would know if I had grossly misstepped by looking at my husband the next day. (laughs) I wouldn't remember a lot of it. I was a blackout drinker. And I mean, it's important to note I was an attorney and a mom and a six, you know, I did four Ironmans as a drinker. Um, So I was quote unquote high functioning. But during this time, I would drive home from work and we lived in a place near um, Mountain Park, Georgia. So the name kind of gives away what it is. I mean, it was very hilly. And there, I would drive down this huge hill on the way home every day. And there was a tree at the bottom of it. And I would think in passing, like, I want to drive myself into that tree. And I would, couldn't wait to get home to open a bottle of wine. And then the next day I'd be hungover. And I think I can't wait. I'm going to drive myself into that tree. And I realized one day that that had become such an insidious part of my thinking that I was a low grade suicide boil, you know, like I knew that I had no real will to live deep down. Um, even though after peeling away the truth onion a little bit on that, it was more that I just didn't want to live the life I was living. Um, and I think that, you know, and that's a broad statement on suicide and depression, but I think that's what it is. It's not that you don't necessarily want to live. You just don't want to live the life you're living. And the day that was kind of the turning point for me was the day I had the thought of driving the car into the tree and my two kids were in the backseat. And I knew at that moment that I was not going to be alive in a year. I knew that at some point you live your thoughts long enough, you're going to act on them. And I knew just one day I would probably just drive the car into a tree, you know? And um, I made the decision to never drink again. Um, I think there's a million ways to get to sobriety. I think AA is great if that's for you. I, I don't care how you get sober. If you need to be a sober person, you got to figure out a way. Um, and for me, I just got sober. And I, I did that by saying I would never drink again. I set a date. It was December 12th. My husband had a work party the night before, and I knew that my last drink would be at that party. And um the interesting part about that party is I don't know that any time in my life I had only had one drink, but at that party I did. I had one, one glass of wine and because I had already decided, I knew it was the end of the road for me and it was not easy, but there was something about that rock bottom for me. And I had worse incidences. I mean, I had humiliated myself and I had made mistakes and, those were more traditional rock bottom instances, but the one that could have cost me and my children our lives, that was it for me. And I knew 
that I had played in the sandbox of drinking and I was now on restriction. <laughs> like, that's what I like to say. Like, I, I, no, I can't moderate. I did that experiment for 20 years. I mean, I'm incapable of it. And so, yeah, I decided to get sober and on my 90 day sobriety date, I announced it on my blog and I told the world, um, which was very hard for me to, I've been very vulnerable uh, across the years about my weight and in my marriage too, but never something that was so risky, I guess. I mean, I was still an attorney at the time and, and I chose to, to tell my story. And the amazing part of it was I probably, I think I published the blog and went to the gym and I came back and I had like over 150 emails. Um, people saying me too, sober eight years, sober 20 years, sober three months. Um, And then the most telling part was the vast majority of the emails said, how do you do it? I need to stop. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is just pervasive. Like this is a secret silent thing that is killing a lot of women and men. And so within the next four weeks, I created Grateful Sobriety, which is just a group on Facebook. Literally, it's a secret Facebook group. You join it, you fill out a form, you come into the world. And it's funny because if you join, you're probably going to see someone you know in the triathlon. If you're in the triathlon community, you're going to know someone there. And it is the greatest group of people. There's AA people, there's non-AA people. Um, The only thing that it is not, is it's not a group for moderation. Cause I, in the beginning I was like, everyone's welcome, whatever. I was very loose about it. And, um, I realized we had some 30 day challenges and people that just were dabbling and they would come into the group to sort of look for validation as to why they could continue their behavior. Mm. <laughs> and, um, that was really harming the people that came to the group because they knew they could not moderate, you know, so that's the only thing. I mean, everyone that has a desire to be sober is welcome. Um, and, and it's, we have about 420 people, which is pretty cool for a little underground thing. Yeah. It's a lot of lives (laughs) that you're affecting right there. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I think back on all the important things that, you know, you hope you do in your life and, Oh, I hope I do good work. I hope, you know, people like my book and do a triathlon. I kind of undervalue, I think, the sobriety portion of my story and and how important that is to tell every once in a while. Like sometimes I just don't say anything about it. And, um, you know, because people that don't have a drinking problem get tired of it. They're like, gosh, she just talks about this all the time. But, um, and you know, I don't, if you can drink and it's fine, there's nothing wrong with alcohol. It's just not, you know, there's a lot wrong with it in my life. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I I like to just keep telling the story where I can, because I I think it does matter. And, and the thing is we all have something and it may not be alcohol for you, but it may be shopping or it may be a sex addiction or, or exercise or food, whatever, like, you know, the same principles apply is how do you get on the road to recovering your best life? And and that's all it is. I mean, removing booze for me was the, the catalyst for allowing room for better things. And it's been three and a half years. And I, I won't say it's easy, but knowing 
that I'm so absolute in my decision about it makes it easy. And I've also made a deal with myself that if I have a great life and I live to 85, that when I'm 85, if I want to start boozing again, I can start boozing. <laughs> I that can seems like a good age. Yeah. Why not? People look at me, but I'm like, you know, if, if I want to do it, then, uh, you know, whatever, I'll get my silk robe and get my cigarettes and my martini and just be like, man, this is what I do. You know? Maybe you'll have somebody else driving you around <laughs> so you don't have to worry about transportation, all of it. But then when I think about that, that's, that's almost kind of points to the, the lunacy of romanticizing alcohol or romanticizing our addictions. Like I, I try and tell people, look, if don't look at red wine and be like, oh, I wish I could. You know, if you're, if you decide to be sober, don't romanticize that crap because that is a poison and it's deadly for you. Like you would not romanticize a boyfriend that punched you in the face every morning. You know what I mean? And that's what booze is for some people. It is that boyfriend that's socking you in the face and you've got to cut it off. Like there's nothing romantic about it if you have a problem. Um, you know, and my husband still drinks. He doesn't have a drinking problem. He can sit there and have a normal amount of alcohol and function. And mm -hmm. I have to deal with that. I can't, you know, expect him to be sober when he doesn't have a problem with it. So I can't, I just don't make eye contact with his wine. We don't look <laughs> at each other. We are not friends. <laughs> so that was the main part of recovery. I mean, people ask how, how you did it with no AA and you know, that's all it was. I quit romanticizing it. I don't make eye contact with it. And I wrote all the time in a journal during, especially the first month, because it, it gets dark. It's hard. It's hard to kick a habit like that. Uh-huh. Um, going back to what you said about driving home from work and the hill and the tree at the bottom of the hill, that reminded me, I don't know if you have noticed this, or I don't think we've had as many instances, maybe since you've moved here, but I feel like Johnson County has a suicide problem Oh, really? high schools. And mm. so I think that that, just that whole thought process is so powerful. And I don't, I don't even know why I'm bringing this up. I don't know what the solution is to it, yeah. but every year in our Johnson County high schools, there is at least one suicide that my kid, my kids have known the person or are friends of friends. And I just think it's so sad. And so I yeah. love that you're telling your version of your story so that people understand that the stuff is okay to talk about. So people yeah. get the help that they need. And that's a really good point. Cause when we, when I left Roswell, we had had two high school suicides um, there and yeah, I think just we as a society have got, and parents, like you have got to talk to your kids. My kids are 10 and 11 and, you know, they'll get mad or, and I think they hear it on YouTube or wherever. And they're like, I want to kill myself, you know? And I'm like, whoa, breaks on, sit down. We're going to talk about what you just said. Um, and it's, I think we have to say this is what I say to my son. He's a little bit of a negative Nelly. He's kind of an Eeyore to, and Stella's <laughs> like, you know, he's got my, a little bit more of my tendencies. And I tell him all the time, life is good, but life is hard. And I think when we raise kids to think that life is supposed to be easy and that life is going to be just this great thing where you have all the electronics you want and all of your friends like you, and you have a ton of likes on TikTok. Um, 
I think if you raise kids to not hurt and to not learn how to cope with feeling, I think when those emotions hit them, they don't know what to do. They don't know that life is really hard and painful and suffering is part of it. And so I think we have to talk about that. I mean, we have to talk about our inadequacies as adults to our children. I mean, we don't want to burden them with things, but my kids know I had a drinking problem. I have mentioned it to them because I got two kids and there's a really 50, 50 chance that one of them's going to be an addict. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, they got the genetics. I come from addicts and um, I want them to know this is a very real thing. So is sadness. So is suicide. But once you make that decision, you can't pull it back, you know? And, and I think there's some sort of subculture with the teenagers and the kids that they don't know the permanence of, of what is happening. You know, they don't, they don't know that when you do that, you're gone. And, and what, and, and maybe that's just me. Maybe I don't understand it, but I just continue to talk to my kids about suicide. I talk to them about addiction. I tell them all the time, like, if you ever get sad enough, if you ever get sad enough that you think you want to die, all I ask is you please just come to me because I do not want you to die. Um, I don't know if that's the right thing to say, but I know that saying nothing is, is probably part of the problem because it seems like all the parents that have the kids, when the kids get lost, they never saw it coming. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that seems to always be the theme. Like they never saw it coming and the kids are getting younger and younger and the pain is real. I mean, people hurt, people hurt down so deep for any reason. And if you're suffering, you're suffering. It doesn't matter why. I mean, it matters why, but it doesn't mean that your reason is any less than my reason for suffering. It's just, we are suffering. And so I think we have to get to the root of that question. Like, why are our kids suffering? And, and how can we talk to them about suffering and pain and that life is good, but it's hard. And here's some coping skills and I'm here for you. And, um, God, I just, I think you have to parent from a place of love and not of fear, because if you start to think about this stuff, it just gets so terrifying. Yes. I said to, um, I had my 14 year old, my freshman in the car the other day and we were, there's been so many kids that have been killed in car accidents this school year too. Oh, Again, a se a boy going into his senior year that goes to my daughter's high school, killed right like a couple weeks before school started in a car accident. So I had my 14 year old in the car the other day and I was like, you guys need to understand that when I seem like I'm overreacting, it is because the absolute worst thing that could happen to me would be for something to happen to you, for you to no longer be here. Yeah. And, you know, I just think it's so important for them to understand that, you know, even if you're not even talking about it from a suicide perspective, yeah. that you are important to me and I will not be okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Anyway. I mean, you know, and one of the things I read somewhere, um, well, I'm really into the Enneagram right now, which is, uh, we could talk a whole hour on that, but it's like a personality typing test psychological thing and you learn kind of where you fall in your number and, and what your basic needs are, but you can kind of learn it about your children too. Hmm. So I've been reading a lot about that and, and it kind of, the idea is as a child, we receive some sort of message 
and we have built our personality kind of up around it. And, and one of the messages I received when I was a kid was that I was very controlled and I wasn't free. And so I felt very controlled and that, and so my biggest fear as an adult is being controlled. I don't want to be controlled. Don't tell me what to do. Nobody puts baby in a corner. (laughs) And um, so I'm trying to look at that, you know, what messages am I giving my kids and what, what messages do they need to hear? And one of the types of my son is he's very introspective and he just, he wants his independence and he wants his freedom. But at some point in his life, he's felt like he needed to do things on his own that I, his mother was not there for him. And I know where it came from. I had kids 14 months apart. I worked full time and I had a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I know that he has that legit feeling because I did that. I some, at some point gave him a message that, you know, he, he needed to do things on his own. And so one of the things I try to do every day with him is just tell him you are loved. And I put my hands on his head and just, you know, hug him however he feels comfortable at the moment. Cause it, it, it swings wildly for an 11 year old. Right. Um, but just tell him you're loved. Not I love you because I think sometimes that becomes so automatic. Right. I love you. I love you. It's like a habitual you. thing that you say. Yeah. But to just be like, you are loved. And so that's where I'm at now in the camp with the kids. And, you know, I can tell my daughter and she's like, yeah, mom, I know you love me. It's obvious. You know, they're just two different kids and and you don't ever know. And gosh, I don't have teenagers, so I'm not an expert on this yet. Uh, I don't, I don't even know how to speak to it, but I think a lot of the messages that we in our generation maybe received were I think we just have to be more conscious now of what we're saying in the social media world too. Mm-hmm. So speaking of children and social media, let's talk about Miss Stella and <laughs> Wads for Kids. Oh my gosh. I've created a monster. Um, no. So I took Stella to the CrossFit games, which for those of you listening is like, It's in Madison, Wisconsin every year. It's the fittest people on earth compete in like massive feats of strength from pull-up, endurance, weightlifting, and it's so cool. And I took her last year because she saw one of the documentaries and she's like, mom, I want to do that. I want to do that. And I thought, okay, let's go, you know, whatever. Let's go see what it's about. And so she became like, that's just what she wants to do. She, She wants to go to the CrossFit Games by the time she's 14. And I support their craziness. Both kids have their own really interesting personalities and goals. And so we set up an Instagram account called wads for number four kids and wad means workout of the day in the CrossFit world. And so she started out wanting to post workouts that she did so other kids could do them too. And that was really fun. And I was like, this is a great marketing thing. You know, I'm like getting behind it. And then she's like, well, I just want to do CrossFit, you know? And so I'm like, but you're killing your Instagram, you know, (laughs) but I'm trying to make her, I mean, what's important is what she's happy, what she's happy doing. And so she still has her Instagram and, um, you know, posts, I mean, I'm in control of it, by the way, for anyone she has, she has no access actually. For anybody who wants to get on here and get critical about that. Yeah. Let me just be very clear. Both my kids have Instagram accounts that they cannot access. <laughs> they get input on what they would like to post and that's it. So, 
Um, but yeah, she has a little Instagram and, and it's doing well and, and inspires kids to get moving, but, um, she's just a force. It's just interesting to see. She's very self-motivating and, um, you know, that's just a rare thing. It's a rare thing in a 10 year old kid to be that self-motivating to, to be, to have their own goals. I think, um, it's very strange to watch, but I mean, she, she inspires me hardcore when we go do a CrossFit workout because man, I can't beat her. You know, we scale the weight, but she, I can't beat her. We did this workout called Randy on Tuesday. I took her to drop her off and I was sitting there and Ben, her coach was like, we're going to do Randy. And I was like, Oh, I have the right shoes on. I want to do Randy too, which is 75 power snatches for time. And so I had 55 pounds and she got, she's obviously got scaled to, I think 15 pounds. But when you look at our body weight, like that's about the same, right? I mean, she crushed me. I did it in like four minutes and 44 seconds. And I think she was like 350. I mean, she is, yeah, she's something else, but yeah, it's just about kind of stepping back and seeing where their interests go. I think it's really easy as a parent to try and push them. Like I wanted a baseball player so bad I could like die. And so I put my kid in baseball at five and he hated every minute of it. And we bought, you know, we paid for lessons, but he hates anything that's not art. And so I finally made a deal with him this year. I said, I am not going to make you play baseball. You're breaking mom's heart, but it's okay. I don't want to put you in therapy either. So um, I said, you know, you're going to have to work out though. That's part of health and it's part of life. So he, he's actually a really good little runner and he runs a couple of times a week for his health. That's it. No competition. And then he does art. I mean, he, but yeah, I had to let it go. I didn't want to, man. I, I didn't want to let go. <laughs> We had this moment where all of my girls played soccer because that's what you do when you live here. All every little kid girls are playing soccer, and I can't remember what grade Katie was in. Maybe fifth grade or so. My husband was traveling for work, and she came home from soccer practice and wrote him this long letter, and then set it on his desk where he would find it when he got home from his trip. And it was just like one of these written from her heart tear jerkers. Dear Daddy, I know that soccer is something that we do together and it's our thing, but I just don't like it anymore. Oh. And she was so apologetic. Oh. And he was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she's been playing soccer all this time because she thought that I expected that of her. You know, baby, go do whatever you want. We're not going to make you play soccer anymore. Go right. act, go dance, no soccer. Right. But we, you know why we have those thoughts is because we, our generation... I mean, you had expectations. They were put on you and you just fulfilled those expectations from your parents. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, and, and it doesn't ha- and that's why we're, our generation so messed up. <laughs> I think <laughs> we did that. We operated from, you know, the moral compass being the wishes and expectations of our parents. And Very true. And Very so true. I think changing that mindset with this generation and being, you know, happiness is overrated to say, oh, do what makes you happy because happiness is not a permanent state. It's not a, it's not a destination. You know, you experience moments of happiness and joy in your life, but you can't just be happy. Like that's such garbage. And so you don't want to be like, Oh, do what makes you happy. It should be more like do what makes your heart sing, do what 
fulfills your purpose. And, you know, just allowing kids to be kids. My gosh, we make, we want them to pick their careers at age 10. You know, if you look, so true. gosh, when we played sports, I started sports at age 11 and, you know, Stella wanted to do ballet for a hot minute, like when she was four and I take her to ballet and they're like, Oh, well, she should have started several years ago. And I'm like, she's four for God's sake. (laughs) What are you talking about? Um, You know, it's just so different now that kids are expected to get involved so early and it's insanity. Just let them be kids, man. Mm -hmm. And I'm guilty of it. I mean, I'm the one pushing my little four-year-old in this baseball uniform, but you know, we're all, he'll, they'll be in therapy talking about me 20 years from now. <laughs> so. Writing books, sweating out, wondering if, you, if they're going to, if you're going to put in a story, they're going to put in a story about you that you don't want. Right. They just Wait, see. You know, what's so funny about my parents. I keep goading them. Like I do these interviews and I, uh, I mention things and I'm like, I keep waiting for a call. Like, do you want to talk about this? No, they, and I know they listen. Hi mom. Um, I know you're listening. Um, but I keep waiting for a conversation about stuff and and it never comes. And I I just think about, you know, if Stella was me and she's talking about me on a podcast, I would pick up the phone and be like, what are you talking about? What, you know, not mad at her, but like, do we need to have a conversation? Or, um, I think communication is so important with our kids and and it kind of goes back to, you know, how do we save them and protect them and also allow them to grow as humans? And I think it's just talking. We have to be more open about everything, everything that's going on in our world and theirs and, and just realize they may all communicate differently, but there has to somehow be a window, a communication that remains open and and for them to always know that. Yeah. So I think that this is another really important topic. Another important topic that also ties into being a parent, but a parent for me, a parent of girls, is that of body image and not appreciating your body for what it can do for you and focusing only on how it looks. And so could you talk a little bit about your journey through triathlon and just how your thoughts about your body have changed over the last couple of years? Yeah, so I grew up um, a pretty chubby kid and I was put on diets pretty young. And, you know, people didn't know you didn't put kids on diets back then because the kids weren't fat 40 years ago. I was fat, you know. And so they're like, what do we do with this little fat kid we have? <laughs> you know, well, we've heard Weight Watchers is good for. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm so from a very young age, I was always thinking there was something wrong with my body. And, and it grew into bigger problems. It grew into disordered eating and drinking and all that. And so I've always hated my body and I've tried to shrink it and I've tried to, you know, diet it down, but I never was a very good anorexic because I like food. And then I couldn't be bulimic because I can't make myself throw up. Like I was a terrible, but yet I was still an eating disordered person because I would binge eat. And I had no way to purge it. And then I, so instead of purging, I would just hate myself. And so where a bulimic will get rid of it, I mean, they still probably deal with self-hate. I couldn't get rid of it. It just lived on me because I had just eaten 12 pieces of pizza. And so I I grew into this very, so I had a lot of self-hatred toward my body and myself. And and I talked about, um, I was actually in an interview yesterday and I talked about this, but how I only lotioned my arms and my legs for like a decade. Like I didn't lotion the middle because I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to see it. Like I just, it was this, 
I hated myself so much. I didn't lotion my boobs and my belly. And, um, so through triathlon and doing this absurd sport where you're in spandex and it's all hanging out, I grew to appreciate the fact that my body could do these amazing things. I mean, never mind. I birthed two children, like grew them and birthed them. Like that should be mm-hmm. enough to make you go, Hey, this body's pretty great. But, um, yeah, it took me doing a really hard sport but doing it at my pace and making it accessible for my body that made me realize I got to get off this, how it looks situation train and start thinking about what it can do. And so that was very important and, and definitely getting away from the scale. Um, I'm still very heavy. I'm just made of bricks. (laughs) I'm a heavy woman. I'm 194 pounds. I did my Ironmans all over 200 pounds. And, you know, I'm working right now toward being a bodybuilder and a figure competitor, but that's going to take me like six years. I don't think people understand how long of a journey this is, but I'm on this journey because of the fact that I have this story that I replay in my head over and over again, that I'm always going to be fat. And, and you know what, listen, let's talk about fat and body image. I am not body negative. I am not a fat hater. I'm not a fat shamer. You can be whoever you want to be. I don't care. Do what you do you, which I hate that saying, but seriously, I don't care what size you are. I'm not shaming anyone for their choices or their body. Me, however, I have this story in my head that I'm going to, I'm always this little fat girl and I'm tired of it. And, And I'm tired of feeling Like I can't change my body when I watch people do it all the time. And so I'm on this current quest to fix my head and I'm doing it through trying to really rein in my nutrition. And I was talking with a psychologist yesterday um, on a podcast and she was saying, we were talking about disordered eating and how eating takes up so much headspace, right? And some of us, like we think about our bellies and food all day long. And how me kind of swinging wildly to this other end has actually been more healthy because like I plan my entire day of meals in my fitness pal. I know what I'm going to eat and then I don't think about it anymore. And it seems like it's almost, you know, obsessive and dangerous what I'm doing. But let me tell you, when I plan my entire day, like when I get off this interview, I'm going to go look in my fitness pal and see what meal three is. And then I'm just going to eat that. And then I'm going to go back to my work, you know, and then when, after I get done with the next part, I'll go look at what meal four is and then I'll just go eat that. It's almost like training myself to not obsess, Mm -hmm. which is, has been a really strange gift, but you know, back to the body image thing. I think it's just, I wish I had a, a, a cure for this because I, I don't, I'm still so messed up in the head about my own body, but I think it's important to be graceful or to give ourselves grace with where this body image thing started. I mean, I talked to Lauren Zander, she's an author and a, a life coach. And she said, you know, Meredith, you're like a 10 year old when it comes to your relationship with your body and your relationship with your parents. And that allowed me to realize that I need to be kinder to myself because the second I was put on that diet at 10, I think I froze there like emotionally with my relationship with food. I became a food sneaker and I became 
shameful about my eating habits and I became embarrassed about my body. And I kind of just stuck there. And when I think about myself as a 10 year old and how I'm emotionally 10 years old when it comes to this topic, I'm able to be a lot kinder to myself about it. Like, how would I talk to myself at 10? You know, my daughter's 10. And so, and she's just like me. Oh gosh, God gave me the child that, you know, he knew I could at least impart some, (laughs) not advice, but just empathy on because she comes in the door and she's ravenous, ravenous. Like she wants to eat everything. But I think about myself, me too, me too want to eat everything right now, you know? And yet we tend to want to shame our kids like no you've had enough to eat or no if it if I didn't know better I would eat the entire pizza too right right this very second because it's delicious you know exactly because it tastes good because I mean food is amazing and she's 10 and she doesn't know you know the implications of health long term she doesn't know about diabetes she doesn't know that that weight gain is not aesthetically damaging that that's not really the issue the issue is long-term health and um, there comes a tipping point where, where health and, and weight do collide. I don't care what anyone says. You can't be 400 pounds and healthy. Sorry, garbage, calling garbage on that. Um, it's just not possible. And so trying to reframe eating and body image in ways of health is, is definitely a goal of mine, you know, outwardly on social media, but also in my own house. You know, when we're done with dinner and we've had plenty to eat, And I hear, I'm still hungry, instead of being like, no, you're not, you can't eat anything else. I go, all right, go eat something, but it has to be green, or it has to come off of a tree. And so I've opened up the door to that post-dinner hunger that is really kind of hard, I think, instead of saying, no, you can't eat. I'm like, go knock yourself out on some celery, you know, and they do. And then they're fine and they've eaten like 10 stalks of celery. (laughs) Like if it grows, they can have it. And um, I'm just sitting here laughing because I cannot tell you how often we get done eating and my family will feel like they didn't have enough carbs and we'll go open the pantry, grab a loaf of bread and start eating just gross plain bread. (laughs) Just normal sandwich bread. There's nothing special about it anyway. I'm like, why would you eat that? You just ate. Right. But yeah, I like that solution. It has to be clean. It has to grow. It has to to grow. Um, Because I think just the message like, no, you can't be hungry. That's a damaging message because you're, you're discounting her feelings. Maybe she is really still hungry. I mean, I don't know what she did at school. Maybe she ran around for four straight hours. Um, You know, you're, you're taking the focus to food being emotional, like when you react emotionally to your kids, like, oh, you can't be hungry. You just ate. Stop it. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, of course, just kind of shaming the idea that if you eat too much, you're going to gain weight and be fat. And no one will love you. And you just got to be so careful because that's yeah. all the crap we do to ourselves. And look what messes we can be sometimes when it comes to our own body image. So I think that's part of the next generation healing. And I, I don't have the answers. I just I screw up all the time. I mean, gosh. I'm terrible mothering, you know, been <laughs> mothering like 50, 50, <laughs> but so yeah. Do you have, I have one final question for you, but before we get to that question, do you have anything else you want to talk about that I did not ask you? Um, where do we really get good barbecue? 
Oh, have you been to, oh my gosh, why can't I think of what it's called? Oh, just Joe's. Joe's Casey. Oh, Joe's. The one in Olathe on Strangline Road. No, Joe's. I'm writing it down. Okay. Joe's. I've got or a lot kind of, of across the street from Target on Stringline Road. <laughs> okay. All right. That's yeah, that was my question. favorite. <laughs> and then I always forget the names. The one on 95th and Metcalf, they have the best. Have you had cheesy corn yet? No. Cheesy corn. <laughs> it's cheese and corn. And then it has a little bit of um, burned ends or some kind of. Oh, a man. Well, good thing I'm allergic to corn because that oh, sounds. There you go. Yeah. It's for my. <laughs> My daughter, who's 21, for her high school graduation party, we ordered barbecue from both of them because I had to have the cheesy corn to go with the good barbecue. Oh, my gosh. Cheesy corn. That's crazy. (laughs) All right. Last question. Power Up Your Performance, the name of the podcast, is all about teaching women how to think, feel, and live like champions. What are three characteristics that you believe that all champions possess, whether that's a champion in life, at work, in their personal lives, or in sport? Um, Number one is grit. And I think grit you're born with or you can cultivate, but I think they're, you know, to be a champion at anything, like you have to be able to just grit through the pain. You have to be able to grit through the the drama and, and just keep going. I mean, that's a close second to being relentless, but I think they're kind of tied in. Um, and, and I use my kids as examples of grit being born and being cultivated because Stella was born gritty. She's just a gritty kid. And then James has cultivated his sense of grit when he found a passion. And so the next thing is, is having a purpose. I think you have to have a purpose for why you're doing what you're doing. Like you can't be a champion if you don't feel the drive and the why behind it. So, um, you can be a great like I was a great or good, fine attorney, right? But I, could, I couldn't ever be a great attorney because I didn't have the purpose and passion behind it to really fuel me. Um, so we have grit, we have purpose. And then I think finally, I had this down and now I don't remember. Um, oh, I, know, I remember. You have to have forgiveness. Um, the whole idea that life is easy and you're not going to fail. Like we were given that message at some point and it's wrong. You know, life is a failure battleground. And so I think one of the things you have to be as a, you know, to be a champion is you have to have the ability to forgive yourself because you're going to relapse. You're going to fail. You're going to fall down. And so self-forgiveness and the ability to pick yourself up is really probably the biggest one. What great answers. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Kim. I'm excited for both books. I can't wait to read both of them. Good. I just love everything that you're doing and everything that you're doing to help people get more active and to help them heal. Well, thank you. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. I'm Coach Kim Peek of Power of Run, and you can find me at www.crushingmygoals.com or on all social media as at sign Power of Run. If you liked this episode, be sure to give the podcast some love over on iTunes and remember to subscribe. 
as a new podcast your reviews and stars and subscribes will help me grow the audience so that I can share my love of health and fitness and bring more experts to the show. Power up your week and I will catch you next Tuesday.